0: Uh, so, um, <coughs> we're getting towards the end of our retreat, and I have to say, I feel like I've been here a long time. I <laughs> <laughs> say in Jujitindra, coming down the stairs, sometimes in a retreat, it's a bit like you're caught in a weird dream, these kind of silent figures walking around. <laughs> anyway, I guess it's all a bit of a weird dream, isn't it, on some level? <laughs> um so tonight, uh, Jitendra and I thought we'd do a bit of a double act. I'm <laughs> not quite sure what it's going to be like, but we we'll would just launch into it. But um, really to begin to reflect around this uh, whole area of integration, um, bringing something of this inner uh, practice, this stillness, and translating it into... Um, the world of activity the world of when we start to emerge from uh, the sense in some ways the meditative processes the the practice of awareness it's a bit like um, a bit like the receding of that wave I was talking about back into the ocean you feel the, the the wave of one's persona and social shaping and individuality and all that we operate through in our daily life has the chance to recede because we're not engaging on that level and tasting something of the, the currents of the ocean but sometimes the stu- stillness and the depth of our being. Um, and so... Um, yeah, so that's very, very lovely. It can be very lovely, but uh, then, you know, the <clears throat> as we come to this stage of the retreat, one can begin to feel both the uh, sense of reluctance to be pulled back into that sense of being the wave and, you know, activating one's survival strategies, <laughs> getting through and getting what one needs to get done, getting that done, and getting things as comfortable as possible, and trying to avoid as much pain as possible, <laughs> and uh, getting caught up in all our complex dramas, <coughs> and uh, you know, and meeting the very overwhelming, intense issues, particularly these days, uh, as we seem to be hurtling towards extraordinarily heightened levels of crisis on a planetary and global weather uh, level of the weather. <laughs> weather weather being the optimum word actually and so, you know, increasing intensity isn't it it's, uh, it's uh, demanding some kind of it's getting more you know, the, the effects of uh, the intensity that, of the Climate, literally the climate and the world that we're experiencing is demanding more and more, is having more of an effect and therefore demanding more of a response, how we make a response to that, you know, from both recycling rubbish more carefully to really thinking about how the choices we make and what we buy and what we do and where we travel and how we travel and the energy we're using and and how all of this is beginning to more and more impact us and um, challenge us and threaten us actually. It brings up different denials and fears and anxieties. So it's an interesting time, we're moving into interesting times and uh, one has to consider, does any of this thing that we're doing in these retreat centers, does any of that relate to the to the world we're in? Um, Or is it just some sort of escapist activity where we can be protected from the currents of life, uh, the winds, the worldly winds for a while, and shore up our boat in a harbour and hope that the world will somehow go away and not bother us? And um, I can see Jits getting some thoughts, that's great. at last, yeah, last <laughs> you know, She's got a thought. A dance. She has to, you know, She's been so busy letting go in that monastery. She? she has to write them down before they. Yeah. Anyhow, grit, So I'll pass it over just now. I forgot. What I was in the middle of some sort of big intense thing about the world that I was talking about. Oh well, yeah, translation of this. Yeah. Yeah the deep and meaningful into the everyday. Mm. So, so there, you know, there is, uh, just a couple of things to, 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 um, context that with, and then, then, uh, to contribute, but, um, there was something that Ajahn Chah, you know, a couple of things he said, um, one of them was that he spent in his, uh, early life 20 years or so he wandered as a forest monk in the, in, in the times when there were forests of course as we know they've mostly gone in Laos and Cambodia Thailand Burma before the forests were cut down before the wave of communism toppled a lot of the uh, mm-hmm. uh, set up boundaries and made it more difficult to wander mm-hmm. but he said that the actual you know the place where he he gained the most wisdom wasn't on solitary practice like that just wandering was actually when he, when he came, eventually he got invited by his uh, his um, his birth community, the village where he lived, to set up a monastery, Wat Ba Pong, in an area which was a cremation ground, which had been inhabited by ghosts. And everyone else was frightened to go there. And he said, this is a good place to start a monastery where no one else wants to go. And that's the way forest monks think. So we'll do... <laughs> Take on what others don't want to do. Anyway, he just, one of his comments was actually the place that he learned the most wisdom was when he was in community, in relationship. That was the testing ground. You know, that's when he had to really, and particularly when he started teaching. Yeah, it was the most uh, challenging. And then another thing he said is when he came to, um, after the, the monks first arrived in England and he came to visit and they'd arrived in 77 and, and the monastery, Chithurst Monastery began in 79, 78, 79 and after a few months or so, you know, monks monk been living about a year I think actually in the UK and he came to visit and he said to Ajahn Sumedha, oh well, you know, how's things going here, you know, how's, how's it going? And uh, Ajahn Samaria said, oh no, it's going well, we're getting along, it's going fine. And he, Ajahn Chowant, hmm, hmm. There's not going to be much wisdom here then, is there? We're <laughs> <laughs> all getting along so nicely. You know, this sense of the, one of his teachings was it's where the, the grit is in the pearl, you know, where the, the, where the, where the, where it, uh, the sense of the, the, uh, the, you know, the friction that's the place of the growth. You know, that's the place where we we turn to. So his his approach was very much rather than peace coming just from being tranquil and um, still. Actually, a more profound peace really arises from wisdom. You know, the, the wisdom. The, the the Our life. It's our life is the ground of our wisdom. Not just the retreats can inform that, but our life, our daily life, is the ground for the work. So. Um, so yeah, so I'll leave it there for now and see if you've got something to hopefully tackle on <laughs> here and there. Illuminate and embroider. <laughs> Actually, just. Mm, yeah, thanks.
1: <coughs> well just um it's the same, I was enjoying listening to you. <laughs> just um coming off what Tanisha was uh, um, saying about Ajahn Shah and, and Ajahn Sumaito when they were in England. And it, um, <coughs> it just brought to mind um, a letter that Ajahn Shah wrote to Ajahn Sumaito uh, before he passed away. Some of you may have heard about this. It's It's been uh, communicated by other monastic teachers um, from our tradition. <coughs> and it, it, it relates to um, you know, taking our practice back into the, the world, so to speak. I mean, we haven't really been separate from the world, as you've, you've noticed, that the, that the world we're investigating is obviously here and now in this body and mind. But as Tanisra said, um, going back to our, our so-called Regular lives or ordinary lives that uh, the wind picks up and those waves, you know, start to the swell starts to pick up in the in that ocean, and uh, it can just feel like you're being knocked about by the waves, and uh, rather than, than knowing yourself as part of that ocean. Um, <clears throat> so this this um, particular. In the, in the same vein, really, is the saying where, where is the, the the place of practice that is really going to bring the fruit. And um, apparently Ajahn Chah never wrote letters to anyone, but uh, um, Ajahn Samedo had settled and established this monastery in England and it was budding, and, uh, and uh, one afternoon from Thailand, Ajahn Chah, decided he need to, needed to write something to Ajahn Sameda. And as it turns out, not long after that, um, he got very ill and fell into, what would you say, it's, um, it was kind of a stroke, wasn't it? And uh, he ended up being in a, in a kind of a vegetative state for about ten years. He was not able to speak. Uh, his community were, were kind of just looking after him, quite powerful. So, so this kind of uh, potentized the power of this letter to Ajahn Sumedho. Um, actually he wanted to communicate this, almost knowing this was uh, his last time. So the main body of that letter is quite short and pithy. It goes something like this. Um, <coughs> Sumedho, whenever you experience love and hate, these are your aids and partners in building Bharami. Bhrama means spiritual power. I say that again: whenever you experience love and hate, these are your aids and partners in building Barami. The practice is not is neither in going forward, nor going backwards, nor standing still. This samado is your place of non-abiding. I'll just, just say that again, It was quite pithy and quite profound. Um, whenever you experience love and hate, these are your aids and partners in building spiritual power, Barami, and I'll talk a little bit about Barami. <clears throat> um, the Dharma or the practice is not, is neither in going forward nor going backwards nor standing still. This somedo is your place of non abiding. <coughs> so it, it, it undermines some quite uh, that teaching undermines quite significant assumptions um, which may be apparent to you. i just um, reflect a little on that the assumptions of, you know, experiencing love and hate. Again, as practitioners we can assume that if we're experiencing intensity of love and hate being pushed and pulled that um, somehow we're missing the the practice, you know, this isn't peaceful, Uh, I've got to do something with this but actually when we meet the world in this way, when we have responses, reactions in this way, uh, the right perspective is to see these things as our teachers, our aides and partners in Building Barami and there's, you know, the, the, the classic Turner phrase about grist for the mill or the, the sharpening stone for the wisdom sword as I was saying in, uh, in one group meeting uh, about the, the manure that actually feeds and nourishes the lotus which is a symbol for the enlightened mind. It's just a very strong Reminder and teaching that this is where the practice is, where where we're feeling life, where we're actually struggling with it. And um, just to open to that possibility that these struggles, these experiences are our aids and partners in building spiritual power. And the other point, uh, other teaching about... The Dharma or the practice is neither in going forward nor going backwards nor in standing still. Is is undermining our habitual attempt to find a place, a position in relation to everything we're experiencing, to find the right place or the right position. In terms of going forward, that which um, draws us forward, we set up goals, uh, as wholesome as they might be, but we think we're going to attain something uh, like the carrot hanging out there. And it's not in going backwards either, like retreating from the things that are wrong, bad, or it's not in retreating. And it's not just in standing still either, even in the position of of standing still with all of this. Uh, Pointing more profoundly to this this place of non-abiding is that place of realization. That ultimately there is no position to take up. One doesn't have to find a position, that whole need of... um, (coughs) It's a stra- strategizing, really, strategizing to find a position. This um, place of non-abiding is, is in reference to many of the teachings of the Buddha as well that come through the, the traditional discourses. You often get this. Non-abiding uh, to abide somewhere is like it's akin to that becoming energy going towards birth, need really, to find an abiding place to become something, and the Dharma is about relinquishing, relinquishing that energy. It's kind of the open hand and not holding, just the opening, or the the the, the, the sense of free fall. Yeah. When you let go, what what happens? And of course, this is something to be directly experienced. It cannot truly be explained, but it can be, the quality of what it's pointing to can be evoked through words such as this. So maybe I'll take the opportunity just now to talk about Parami, um, which is a a kind of um, something we haven't talked about this retreat. Obviously there are many, many things we haven't talked about this retreat. But I think particularly in taking our practice back into our our lives, we're looking for what can support us in that, what can we uh, help us keep the reference points um, for practice, things such as um, sila, the um, five precepts, which uh, we're encouraged to keep as a a basis for for ethical um, behavior, conduct, just to create a kind of a sense of context within which we're working and, and we'll look at that actually ethical behavior or sila and you might call it ethical behavior or morality or virtue or wholesome living. It really comes out of a place the Buddha points to as um, a kind of as this sense of conscience, you know, human conscience. And here and Otipa sense of conscience or conscientiousness and a sense of integrity sometimes gets translated as having a sense of shame but I think that can go a little bit far in, in, the, in the Western mind because there's, there's issues about shame and being shamed so I really like this translation of integrity conscientiousness and, and integrity and these are called protectors of the world or upholders of the world Hili and otapa. guardians of the world sorry uh, conscience, conscientiousness, integrity, and it, it's what helps us um, create kind of references and directions for our behavior in the world. So Celia, this classically in the Theravada teachings is ten parameters, and parameters or barami, uh, literally is translated as spiritual power and it is said that on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, when Mara was challenging after you know, after his full awakening, just after his full awakening, or perhaps right right at that moment when Mara was sending all of his armies to really challenge the Buddha. He did not Mara did not want this to happen, did not want an enlightened one to appear in the world and ruin all his work. <laughs> So the allegory has it that Mara is just sending all his armies to kind of um, uh, obstruct the Buddha in whatever way. And uh, and challenging his uh, sitting on the seat of enlightenment. And uh, uh, when the Buddha had, had, had fully awakened, the story goes, it's a lovely allegory that, in fact... The mudra is here, you see the the Buddha Rupa up here is the right hands touching the earth. It's called the earth touching mudra. You'll see Buddha statues with different mudras, the hands like this or like this or like this, teaching mudras and meditation mudras, the earth touching mudra. Reminding us of that time, just with the full awakening, Uh, Buddha's being attacked by the forces of Mara to kind of knock him off his seat of enlightenment. And what he does is he touches his hand to the earth and the story says he calls on the, um, the earth mother to recognize uh, his development of barami, of spiritual power, and to kind of affirm, no, he had, uh, the Buddha, the Gautama Buddha, has the right to sit on this seat of enlightenment because of his developed parami. And uh, the story has it that, of course, the Bodhisattva over many lifetimes developed the Bharami the to the spiritual power, to, to come to full awakening without having heard the teaching in the world. We, we get a lineage of teaching uh, from, from Gautama Buddha, but he was born at a time where there's no teaching around the Four Noble Truths. So for someone to discover that alone, it's said to take quite a lot of barrami. So it's a nice, I find that a very nice... Reflection Not only is the Buddha calling on a, on a female deity, feminine deity, to acknowledge and affirm, <coughs> but it's acknowledging the right to sit in this place. a kind of the strength, the inner strength that can withhold the fo- or can withstand the forces of Mara, the forces of doubt, the forces of passion, uh, and can stand there and say, you know, I know you, Mara. And the story has it that the the Earth Mother, um, uh, I think, created this huge flood with her her long hair and swept away the forces of Mara um, in affirmation, in recognition of this uh, uh, developed spiritual power. It's nice, some sense that the Earth remembers. something within even the body, the sense, you know, we, know, we understand this concept of um, cellular memory, tissue memory, emotional memory that's held, it's not always conscience, conscious. So a sense that earth remembers. So just to name those barometers as a way of um, taking it with us and, and seeing these reminders for qualities we can develop as we move in the world, in our families, in our work, negotiating the tubes if we're living in London, negotiating the the crowds, the busyness, the the uh, conflict at work or at home. I'm just naming the the parts that are unpleasant. There's lots of pleasant stuff too, but we don't tend to find issue with that, <laughs> which should perhaps be reflected upon as well. But, um, <clears throat> so the first of the barometers is sila, is this uh, virtue to cultivate wholesomeness, to cultivate a sense of conscience and integrity and to let that guide you from a place of knowing for yourself what feels appropriate here, what's the right form of action. And there's a lot actually within that, I mean, you could just say, just follow the five precepts. Uh, Five precepts: refrain from intentionally killing any living creature; to refrain from um, intentionally taking that which is not yours, which is not freely given—in other words, of stealing; to refrain from um, uh, harmful speech, false false speech, harsh speech, backbiting, gossip. All this kind of creates a kind of mm, kind of energy in the field which has effects. Uh, and to refrain from misuse of sexual um, of sexual energy, uh, which is basically around uh, the way it's talked about in the suttas, is, is respecting relationships, commitments, and also respecting um, uh, the coming of age, not to use your sexuality in relation to, to someone who is under the, the legal age, obviously. And so it's about consenting, consenting adults, um, Using their sexuality, uh, not to not to abuse, not to um, disempower, manipulate, but you know, as as a, as a loving act, of sharing it, and to have respect in that. And and the fifth one is about um, intoxicants, about refraining from using intoxicants that cloud the mind, because it tends to undermine um, the development of of awareness. And mindfulness tends to to knock us a little off centre, even one or two glasses, kind of get a little askew, <laughs> and uh, and we might, with, with a kind of subsidence of mindfulness, might might do things that we would otherwise perhaps avoid. With, uh, and that um, is something to be taken. You know, if you choose to pick this up, it could be full abstinence from from um, um, recreational drugs and um, and alcohol or you might choose to just limit it to something that's that you know still um, you know some people do feel it's 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 difficult very difficult within certain work situations or family situations to be completely abstinent and teachers hold different views on how you should hold this and I, I think it really is something that you should know what you want to do is for yourself, as I said, total abstinence, or it might just be limiting to one, two, or you, know, well, you may not want to pick this precept up initially if you don't see the value of it, it's not kind of, they're not meant to be kind of commandments, they're actually called precepts of training. And so if you want to cultivate the training, they become helpful, they become like a container, like like a kind of a mobile retreat. <laughs> They continue, seriously like a, it, it creates a boundary and, and, and Selah is about a wholesome boundary so the way it works is if you make a commitment to some boundaries when you get close to that boundary or get close to going to the edge something kind of comes up and says hey this was your boundary it gives you a chance do you really want to cross this do you really know what you're doing here it kind of flags it whereas if we don't have that Boundary in place, you might easily uh, move into different behaviour. So it can be quite skillful. And, and of course, if one does does cross the boundaries against one's own commitment, it's not about you know going to hell and I'm such a bad person for doing that. It's about reflecting on on the results of that behaviour. So, so so what was the jo- results of that? Was it wholesome? Was it uh, helpful for myself and others, or did it result in some harm for myself and others? This was always the criterion of the Buddha for a wholesome and unwholesome activity that we reflect around it. Is it harmful to myself or others at any level, or does it bring benefit? And to know that we really have to taste the fruit. To know if something is harmful we need to taste the regret or the pain in the heart and that that becomes our teacher, uh, not something to whip ourselves over, uh, but actually, hmm, I, I understand this now and so I don't want to go there again. I mean, so this is, and this, in its own right, is really beginning to understand the law of cause and effect. That's why the Buddha wanted us to reflect around this and know for ourselves because it brings us into right view, which is the basis uh, for path factors arising. So that's the the first barami, actually it's not the first barami, dana is the first barami, sila is the second barami, so I got tripped up there. dana, sila, I'll name them dana and sila, so dana is generosity, sila is uh, virtue, wholesome living, Um, Nekama is renunciation and I'll talk a little bit about what that might mean um, outside of a, a renunciate commitment. Um, Panya is wisdom, developing wisdom. Wiriya is uh, energy, developing energy in the practice, in our life. Um, Kanti is patience, sometimes called patient endurance, Um, that's the sixth one. Um, Satcha is honesty, seventh. And then there's aditana, sense of resolve or or commitment Um, or sometimes called determination uh, metta, loving kindness, developing developing a heart of loving kindness towards oneself and others, and Upeka, um, developing the quality of equanimity. Excuse me, or serenity. So these are the, the ten barometers, and I'll just maybe reflect on a few and then pass back to Tenzin to pick on, up on some. Yeah. yeah. So I've, I've talked a lot about sila and I think I got sucked into that as the first because we often hear the path as sila samadhi panya and sila as a basis. Um, and, uh, you know, With wholesome living, I'll just name this now since we're in the territory, with a sense of conscientiousness or conscience and integrity in place and kind of guiding our our actions, our behavior, our, our being in relationship, um, that tends to allow the mind to come to a, play, a place where there's not really a lot, lot of regrets. you have past regrets. But because we're really being mindful, we don't carry, we don't get into situations where, that we regret a lot. We don't tend to, at least, um, um, it's less than if we weren't cultivating Sila. <laughs> so this is actually helpful. This is helpful for our meditation practice, helpful for the mind to come to into a place of calmness and, and a quiet joy about just um knowing you're doing as well as you can in your effort around this, you know. So that supports samadhi and, and uh the the insight. That is the the second barometer. The first one being dana is generosity and just to say a few things about that. um, Obviously there's the the generosity. um, I think the three of them are named. I'm not sure if it's in the texts or in the commentaries but it's there's obviously the giving of of material uh, support um, to other beings, sharing that with other beings. There's also the the giving of one's time, and and there's another one named as as the giving of fearlessness, which I really quite like—the gift of fearlessness, uh, which is uh, this sense of um, because you know, as as um, individual creatures in this world, fear. You know, it's quite an instinctual thing. Well, all of us are all a bit on guard, aren't we? You know, where's the next attack going to come from? Or, uh, you know, always being careful, and just the gift of fearlessness is about carrying that that heart of meta really, as as an offering So you're coming into relationship um, with an energetic sense for the other person, just saying this this is safe, you know. Knowing in oneself one, one's intention to non-harm, really to harmlessness. And dana is also the gift of dharma, which is said to be the highest gift um, because it's that which can actually help beings, uh, you know, see through the, 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 the whole constructs of suffering in their lives. Um, and the gift of dharma, you know, it's not just given from dharma teachers up on the on stage with the mic, um, it, it, for all of us who have been touched by the Dharma, just acting from that place, in relationship in anywhere we are, um, is is a very high gift. People will be touched um, if you're if you're coming from that place and those principles that you love and respect the most. And, and this was said to be the highest gift, the gift of dharma. Obviously, if you, you know, can communicate some of your experience of dharma, that's, that's wonderful too. But it's, it's never, in this Buddhist tradition, it's never really encouraged to proselytize. Get on your soapbox and say, you must come and hear this dharma talk. <laughs> you must come and listen to me, like the Buddha did initially. <laughs> I'm the all enlightened one. <laughs> um, it doesn't work actually. Uh, to really hear Dhamma, people have to have uh, an open heart. they have to come wanting to hear. So just to recognize that and your enthusiasm, if, if it comes up to, to try and help someone get out of the mess that they're in, you know just do they want to hear? Are they that? Are they interested uh, your, your gift of Dhamma can be communicated in many other ways rather than just through, through, through speaking. And of course, just the movement. I mean, it's interesting that dhana, generosity, is, or offering, it is the first of the barometers. Just the movement of opening out. Movement of the heart to open. Being willing to give. And I find this, it is somewhat in connection with uh, renunciation, the third paramita, Nekama. It's like, it's going against that movement that just wants to keep things for me, keep my space safe, just keep what I need for myself. And that's a very, it's a fearful place. It's a a place where there's no trust. and, And there's, even though we're thinking, we're gathering the things we need to be safe, actually we never quite feel safe because of this needing to hold. And the, the lovely thing that happens when we learn to, to begin to trust little and open out, and even just a little offering here and there, it may be symbolic, it may be ritual, or it may be actually to another being, no matter how small it might even be, be in, instead of crushing that ant in the kitchen, you might actually gently pick it up and, Walk it outside. Even these kinds of things, their heart, their heart opening, and with that heart opening, it brings us into a territory which is, which is, just, just, just lovely, in in very little ways. It's it's the ability just to to open this out a bit. It it, it loosens up that habit of clinging, of holding, of grasping, on all levels, on all levels. And with the open hand or the open heart, uh, it also, for me, also puts me in touch with the um, capacity to trust. Maybe it's a bit like floating. If you've floated in water, you have to really spread your limbs out. If you don't spread your limbs out, you kind of sink pretty quickly. But you really have to open out the body and breathe, (laughs) because if the lungs aren't filled with air, you see, you need to fill up the lungs with air. And it's a bit like that, and you get there's support there, and things things can come to you. If you're closed off, things can't come in, but when you're open, other things come in and you find gifts and offerings and support come through you, come to you, uh, when there's that openness. So this to me, that aspect of dana and nekama really go together. You know, in a monastic life, the practice of renunciation is, is much more <coughs> um, obvious. You know, there's lots of things renounced. Uh, for us in, in our, our lay life in the world where we're, we're using uh, many things to support our life, I'd just like to encourage that reflection on, on that energy which wants to gather and keep to protect me as opposed to the, the flow of open-handedness, open-heartedness and let things flow to you, through you and, and to others. So I think I'll pass it back to Nisura. Okay. To you, you might have something more to say about those things. But. <coughs>
0: Thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I just i um, mm. <clears throat> I'm just very just listening to <coughs> Jatindra speak about the Barami, uh, cultivating Baramita and um, just how much that not consciously, but how on some level that f- that does provide a framework for my working in life. I I am um, tend to see um, challenges <clears throat> as opportunities, really, for cultivating one of one aspect or another of one of these qualities that strength. I mean, I see barometer as that which strengthens the heart. And um, when I was talking earlier about, you know, the increasing um, challenges that I sense anyway, global challenges and in intensity um, that affect all of us, then I feel one of the things that need to really be consciously um, taken on board is the necessity to strengthen, strengthen the, our ability to withstand pressure and to withstand intensity and to withstand uh, stress without defaulting to, um, to, to fear or to aggression. When, when we see the world in very dualistic terms and uh, our base of survival gets threatened when we have relied a lot on the sense of shoring up our well-being at the expense of others or not really considering the whole, and then we feel threatened, then it's very easy to move, you know... The, in, into service of the of the of the mind, the ill-informed mind or the unilluminated mind, which is, which can be very powerfully stimulated by impulses of fear and survival. And then, when that level of our being is stimulated, then we can become very unconscious and act out in quite harmful ways. And this is what human beings do. And we're capable of generating enormous amounts of pain and destruction. And we think we can think in our comfortable world that we're immune from that kind of stimulation or that activity. But I've certainly seen places in myself when I've been really on the on the line, or or really uh, really deprived in some way, or really, you know, um, feeling st- um, challenged about whether I have enough resources around something. Or, I can see I've seen in my own own um, my own you know, being stimulated into feeling very powerful impulses of of uh, fear or violence or aggression, and it's at those moments one of the things that Ajahn Chah talked about. He said all of this practice is really preparation for the moments when you really get hit by something very powerful and it stimulates strong passion. Um, that can be destructive or just sweep us away or, or we get hit by powerful losses or powerful moral dilemmas and it's easy to default to our own uh, to, to, to those sort of very instinctual places that we all have you know, that, 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 that in some ways in our socialization in our comfortable lives we often get um, you know, removed from having to confront or feel but if those are Shaken, or those are diminished, those comfort zones. Then we we will feel those energies <laughs> that will come up. Um, and so I, I, you know, I see in some ways, I you know, that we we're living in a, a world that's increasingly being shaken. You know, our survival, our assumptions, and our ability to control and hold comfort zones is going to be increasingly shaken. I think that's. Um, Something of what we're moving into, and um, and I and I, f- I think that's very interesting territory because I feel that it's perhaps there's a, a pressure to shift or evolve into a more uh, u- unified consciousness where, if we begin to trust in a way that heart of awareness or that you know that heart that heart that can really steady around mindfulness and open into aware- in awareness, we really sense the flow of the interdependence of life which we're a part of. and we can see things more you know more from a, a holistic place, a compassionate place, an interconnected place rather than an individualistic place where you know my needs are primary of everyone else. Um, then I feel that there's some kind of hope for some compassionate interaction um, with each other. And uh, for there to be compassion and wisdom to operate, so I I, I, fi- I find that we're, there's a very interesting, um, um, sh- you know, that crisis challenge, whether it's it personally in our lives or more globally, brings about the possibility in some ways to default to patterns of fear denial constriction um, or into some sort of growth and evolution and some sort of uh, shift into uh, other levels of consciousness and so or other levels of awakening um, and I just you know I mean what's true on a on a minuscule level you know in this body mind is true on a macrocosm so so I mean, in some way, for me, in my mind, there is a relationship between what you know, what we're exploring in, in our internal world, and how we express that as we go into the world around us, and how we learn to to see context um, or practice in ways of you know just strengthening. Um, that things that are difficult. I find, I have to say, I find a lot of life difficult. <laughs> I, I acknowledge that, you know, that that's the case. I, we weren't born into a heavenly realm. This is Sangsara. It's quite, you know, it's challenging. It's painful. It's difficult. Um, and um, I think, having lived in, uh, worked in South Africa the last 12 years, it's been um, almost totally just an exploration and how to use very difficult circumstances um, to cultivate this ground of paramita and this ground of you know really being challenged to look at uh, you know to look at how to um, both hold one's own integrity as Jatindra is just talking to, but also to hold a place of compassion and metta, to feel what we you know feel sometimes great you know very powerful things sort of feeling. You know, can be feel betrayed by people or can feel a lot of aversion or a lot of struggle um, and how to be in touch with that in a way that's open and inquiring and transformative but not infecting the heart. You know, so that you can hold the heart space clear, not being flooded and overwhelmed, um, hold one's own integrity and one's strength and one's well-being. So I suppose for me the metas also about how to hold that for ourselves, how to hold challenges in life um, in context of both practice and cultivating bear and me, but also how to, I think one of the things I've really learned from therapeutic work is how to, this word of resourcing, how to take care of ourselves so that we have capacity, so that we can have strength, so we can have well-being. And practice isn't just about running ourselves down and. Being out there on the front line all the time and taking on the, the most difficult things—it's also about knowing how when it's appropriate to retreat and and when we're on the edge of you know our capacity and when it's appropriate to come and nourish ourselves and generate a sense of inner well-being. We, we can't really um, help or respond if we become depleted and, um, and unable to hold our own strength. So there's very much this this balance, you know, between the the mountaintop and the marketplace. Is the archetype is you know, times to retreat and gather and look at these subtle processes um, and enable ourselves to to perhaps uh, explore this very um, most subtlest, in some ways, of the barometers, the equanimity, the place where we put it all down, the place where we let it all go, where we. Touch into the perfection of the unfolding of everything. And let it be as it is, and not struggle with it, not worry about it. Um, you, you know. So um, I remember, um, <coughs> you know, and in some way, this equanimity is 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 about bringing us to a very, you know, this is the place that we've been practicing. This whole, you know, retreat, the place of the open heart, the open awareness, the the letting go, the the being rooted in the knowledge that all things, whatever they are, will will pass. You know, whether it's painful and difficult or whether it's pleasant, whether it's owning property or whether it's losing everything on the stock market, which you might have done because while you've been on retreat, the stock markets have (laughs) gone through a huge kind of tumble and... So anyway, don't worry about that. All, you will a retreat and find your bank accounts wiped out, you'll be well prepared. You know? <laughs> Which, by me, was I supposed to be... Equanimity's the one. <laughs> yeah, this too will pass. And so, um, yeah. And I, I remember, it's funny, I just sort of here on this retreat I and mean, we went on the pilgrimage together to India. I don't know if you remember that. I, I realise when we, one remembers things, I've said... Things to friends. I said, "Do you remember blah blah blah?" They went, "No," or, or they remembered it very differently. So I don't know if Pam might have the same memory as me. But we had gone to see um, uh, one of the uh, one of the um, great saints that have, has been a very I found very inspiring. is a is a guru called Ninkuli Baba who has temples in northern India and had a temple in Nanitar which is a hill station. In, in northern India, and we'd gone to check out the, um, you know, the temple of the Guru, and uh, gone there and offered sweets and done all the things that you do in temples. And As we were leaving, we were getting on one of these endless bus trips to go somewhere, Other, I don't know where we were going, but we had some plan to go somewhere. And we were sitting on the bus and the bus was, was late and it was delayed and, you know, and I think we had to get to a train or something so I was getting quite stressed about you know, my Western way. <laughs> you know, things aren't working on time here. <laughs> anyway, I was sort of sitting there getting quite uptight about this and I looked out the window and I saw this guy who looked completely mad. He had this sort of um, dhoti on and this white kurta, and he was, it was Bidi's. Um, this sort of um, beetle nut that he'd been chewing, a beetle nut, and there was red juice coming out of his mouth and dripping down. I looked at this guy I thought, God, I hope he doesn't get on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and of course he, he, got on, he got on the bus and made a complete beeline to me. And I thought, oh, please, can I disappear, can I disappear? And he came out with a sort of perfect English accent and he said, um, Madam, where are you going? And uh, you know, and he started making fun of me. He said, Oh, you know, buses aren't like they are in England, you know, they're not on time. And he started, doing, and he's getting louder and louder in the bus, everyone's laughing. And, uh, and I was getting more and more embarrassed. And he said, oh. and he said Where are you going, madam? And I, said, I came up with this whole plan, you know, we're going here we're going there we're going here and there and there, and, and uh, being a bit of a control freak that I am. And and he looked at me and he suddenly just his whole gaze just held me in this very powerful gaze. He's like he just shifted from this madness into this complete sort of intensity and he just said, If you think you know where you're going, you don't know anything. <laughs> and then he just walked off. <laughs> and I looked out the window and said, well, that must have been the guru, I missed him. <laughs> I just couldn't see it I just disappeared into thin air. I just thought, well, blind, I just had the darshan, I didn't even know it. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I just, I just really, I just really love how, when we do open up, how mysterious life is, and how many, you know, how benevolent it is, and how many teachings come in all sorts of ways. And I think that, you know, when we think it can only come on a dharma seat in a Meditation retreat. We don't realise that All the Dharma is teaching us all the time. Everyone's teaching us. Life is teaching us. and you know, Nature is teaching us. And so, <laughs> so it's really lovely when we can see. Actually, I think in my, you know, being sort of worn down by life, really. <laughs> That I've gotten to the place where I don't make, I don't really don't really make so many distinctions. So when people say, "What about practice in daily life?" My mind goes a bit blank because I don't think of it so much in those terms. I used to; it was very, very separate. There was retreats, and they were good, and they were better, and then there was. (laughs) <laughs> the rest of it, which was hell <laughs> you know, and, and you know, just get me to the retreat and that's how I used to think, and this is high and that's low and I mean, I think a lot of that's just been iron you know, just just from pure, purely being ground down somehow, and, and, and actually I've had most of my most amazing insights sometimes in the middle of the most unexpected places, I was Kitty Sore and I had done a three month retreat at the Hermitage and we, were, um, we, were, we got the van down from the Hermitage to uh, the airport. This is in South Africa, to Durban, to drop off some of the retreatants. And we were a bit addicted to movies, you might have gathered from the talk the other night. So we were leaving and we said, oh yeah, it's going to catch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, uh, it was a Sunday afternoon and we went to the shopping mall and it was absolutely beautiful. Packed, solid with young people all dressed up, you know, picking each other up and having a ball and pounding rock music coming out the spear and it was like, oh my god, what have we done and it was just like this whole all my sort of conditioning my terror came up and said this is the wrong place to be, this isn't you know, sensory indulgence and this and that, and I sort of let go of that and it just emptied out I just sort of had this moment of realising there's no one here mm. You know, there's there's actually no. It's completely. It's just movement and 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 the flow of the kundas. It's just like amazing. Wow! Look at all of this. It's just life flowing and you know. Once I stop framing it in this kind of package of good, bad, should be, shouldn't be, it's just what it is. It's just revealing itself to us. Mm. It's, It's just dhamma, nature. So, you know, the, as they said, the, uh, uh, the way, you know, walking... Uh, I can't remember what they said, actually. Some quote was on the edge of your bed. Just, just disappeared. <laughs> it must be getting late. What time is it? i just finish with a little story, and maybe Ooh. we'll wrap it up for tonight. We can carry on tomorrow, because there's a lot more to say about this uh, topic. but um, There was a, a... You know, we've drawn a little bit from the teachings of Master Chinois, the Kuan Yin teachings of Kuan Yin Dhammadur. And uh, he, was a, he was like an Ajahn Chah from the Chinese school, a lovely being. And um, and he came, uh, he, um, he there was some exchange between his monastery and the monasteries that Jitindra and I were in. And, um, and, and there was a delegation from our monastery that flew over to California to go and spend time in the city of 10,000 Buddhas. And Kilisara was part of that delegation, and uh, when they arrived at the airport, there was a group of uh, monks and nuns that had come to meet them in, in San Francisco, and including uh, Master Wu. Master has got this awesome presence, and just like really you know, kind, of <laughs> kind of an amazing being. And very still, very, very powerful. And, and Kiyosawa is just so thrilled to to meet Master Wah. You know, it's these incredible teachings that have come from him, and all these books, and all these. So he kind of bounded up to him, and suddenly he's standing in front of Master Wah, and he, he he realized he didn't know what to say. So he said, um, "Do you like it here?" <laughs> <laughs> what do you say to a master and the master looked at me and said I like it everywhere (laughs) that's it for tonight (laughs) so yeah great